Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10. And we're going to see here the repentance and restoration of the people. Now, never take too lightly the power of the prayers of just one dedicated believer. Because the intercession of only one concerned person can make a huge difference in what God will do for his people. We see a great example of that in Exodus 32, verses 9 through 14. After Aaron and the people had had made a golden calf and they were partying and they were worshiping this idol and and the Lord went to Moses and he said to Moses, I have seen this people. And indeed, it is a a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And I will make you, uh, he's talking to Moses, I will make you, Moses, a great nation. In other words, I'm going to wipe them out, Moses. It's you and me. We'll just start all over again. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So it says, the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people, all because of one man's prayer. God was going to wipe the people out, but Moses interceded on their behalf, and God heard him. Here we have a great example in chapter 10 of the communication, the interaction of faithful intercessory prayer and the purpose of the Lord. God intended to spare Israel, but he drew Moses into the process by causing him to pray for the right outcome. And he uses our prayer together with his own determination to make his will come to pass. Moses' prayer was accepted by God. Moses had prayed for God to have mercy on Israel, and he received mercy for Israel. But that mercy wasn't based on Israel's importance or their merit or value. That mercy was based on God's honor and reputation. That was what was at stake. And when we base our prayers on the character of God, we are on good ground. So as Ezra prayed and wept at the altar in front of the house of God, we read that a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered together, and they felt the overwhelming conviction of sin. And after this great prayer meeting, a revival started. And revival always leads to changes. So let's look at verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jael, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. 
Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all of these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. That's what Shechaniah was telling Ezra here. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Verse 5, then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. So a lot of people in Israel were really concerned about the sin in their midst. So while Ezra wept and prayed and confessed, all of these people gathered around Ezra, and they wept bitterly because a deep conviction of sin had come over God's people at this particular time. And it was definitely something that was needed. Now, Ezra was a very extraordinary man. But all of the things that made him extraordinary was his godliness. When the city got word that a man like this had torn his clothes, a lot of the people gathered around him. And in front of these people, Ezra prayed to God. But in his prayer, he didn't mention anything about hope. So this stirred up Shechaniah to say something about hope, which was very wise, and it was a right thing to do for this occasion. In verse 2, notice, Shechaniah's speech was a confession of sin. He said, we have trespassed. He did it. You know, he did it to tell God how grieved he was that God's honor was insulted by his people's wickedness and foolishness, putting themselves in harm's way of God's judgment. So again, they were inviting God's God's judgment because of their sin. But the people who were involved in the sin, the problem was they weren't grieved. They weren't bothered by their sin. And that's why Ezra had no reason for hope. Because if people have no grief, they don't mourn, they're not bothered by their sin, they don't have any hope. They don't have a desire to repent. They don't have a desire to confess their sin. They don't have a desire to change. And so without repentance, a sinner can't ask for mercy. Listen to what God said in Isaiah 1, 11 through 15 from the New Living Translation. God tells his people, I'm sick of your sacrifices. Don't bring me any more burnt offerings. I don't want the fat of your your rams or other animals. I don't want to see the blood from your offerings of bulls and rams and goats. Why do you keep parading through my courts with your worthless sacrifices? The incense that you bring me is a stench in my nostrils. Your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath day and your special days for fasting, even your most pious meetings are all sinful and false. I want nothing more to do with them. I hate all your festivals and sacrifices. I can't stand the sight of them. From now on, when you lift up your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look. Even though you offer many prayers, I will not listen because... Your hands are covered with the blood of your innocent victims. So for Ezra, the smoke of the evening sacrifice, which should have been a sweet-smelling aroma to to God, could only be a sign of the wrath of God. Now the sacrifice is done on behalf of the people. Now he doesn't seem to to have been guilty himself, but he knew that the people wept bitterly, according to verse 2. They wept bitterly with him as he was praying showing that they, the people, were truly repentant. But it seems that Shechaniah became the spokesman for this group of people who recognized their sin and wanted to confess. So he comes to Ezra and he says, Ezra, we've trespassed against our God and we have taken pagan wives from the people of the land. 
What we've done is totally against the law of Moses. We have departed from the word of God. We've disobeyed. Now, to most of the people gathered around Ezra, the situation probably looked hopeless. But not to Shechaniah. So what does he do? He throws himself upon the mercy of God. And he says in verse 2, Yet there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Man, we always have hope with God. And we need to remember that if we are willing to confess our sin and throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Shechaniah encourages himself here and the others to hope that even though the situation was bad, it could be fixed. It could be corrected. You know, it was a bad situation, but you know what? It's not desperate. The disease of sin, it's threatening and it's deadly. But you know what? There is a remedy. There's hope that the people might be reformed and the guilty would be rescued and the spreading of the infection of sin could be stopped so that the wrath of God, which sin deserves, might be stopped and everything will be okay. Shechaniah recommends a nationwide repentance and reformation in verse 3. There were those who now joined in this confession who also, it says, trembled. Trembled at the commandment of God. Trembled at God's word. That is, they not only read it and studied it, they let the word of God have its way in their hearts. And and that's so important to understand. We can read it all we want. We can study it all we want. But if the word of God doesn't have its way in our heart, what good does it do us? It's just information at that point. If it doesn't bring transformation. You would think that there were others besides Ezra which advised the people to put away their strange wives. That is the foreign wives, the pagan wives, and tremble at the word of God. But notice here the power of God's word. It was the power of God's word that makes men tremble. You know, we can tell people about God and the word of God and and, and encourage them to do right and be right. and, And we can do all that we can. But there's nothing like the word of God when a person reads it. And that power of the word of God makes them tremble. You know, it's like reading the word of God and coming to repentance. And I know how many times, you know, Pastor Rawl talked about, you know, witness to me about repenting and I argued and I didn't need it, didn't want it, wanted to do it. And picked up a Bible one day and read it. And the word of God just just caused me to melt right where I was standing. And that night I came to Christ. Nothing does it like the power of the word of God. The power of God's word makes us tremble. It brings us conviction. And to prove this, look at Jeremiah 23, 29. He says, Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Man, how many hammers have been broken beating the word of God? How much time, you know, no matter how hard a person is, the word of God can break that hardness. You see, we need to strive to develop this holy character in our soul so that we, that is our soul, trembles at God's word. When the sin was brought to the people's attention, they confessed it. They didn't try to, they didn't try to lessen it. They didn't try to water it down. They didn't try to excuse it or cover it up. They came right out and said, we have sinned. And they did this according to the word of God. Now, <clears throat> Why were the men commanded to send their wives and their children away? Even though this was a radical move, intermarriage to heathens was strictly forbidden. Even the priests and the Levites, the leaders, 
who should have been the most responsible, the most guilty, they did the same thing. They broke the word of God. They broke God's law. Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4. Listen to what God's law says. Nor shall you make marriages with them, that is, the heathen nations. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Notice the knowledge of God. He's omniscient. He says, this is what's going to happen if you do this. You marry those who who worship idols, they're going to cause you to do the same thing. Now, God had promised to drive out the pagan nations and to deliver them into the hands of the Jewish army. And with the Lord's help, Israel would defeat those nations and destroy them and everything connected with their religion. Israel was to keep herself separate from these nations. And God told him why. The, The Lord would not allow intermarriage, political treaties, or any kind of toleration or interest in the pagan religions of the land. And the reason was pretty obvious. Because any connection with the godless Canaanite religion could lead Israel into ungodly partnerships that would weaken their relationship with the Lord and invite God's judgment. Because Israel, remember, is God's chosen people. Israel is his treasured possession. And their separation from idolatry in Canaan was important for the nation's spiritual health and their future. You could compare this today to a Christian marrying a devil worshiper. Now, even though it was a severe answer to the problem of of them having to put away their wives and their children, it only involved 113 out of approximately 29,000 families. But Ezra's action here, solution, was severe. I mean, think about it. These men had married sons, and, and, and their sons had married the women of the land. They probably had children. They had homes. And here they had to send them away. I mean, that would be very hard for some people to take. But it had to be done. Why? To preserve Israel as a nation committed to God. Now, here's the problem. Let's look, let's look at the real problem here. Why Israel got into this mess. And this is what we see when people get into messes all the time. They cry and they complain about what God has done to them or what has happened to them because of their sin. When people sin, when they break God's laws, that is his word, when they disobey it, when they decide to think that they're more wise than God, and then God punishes them or disciplines them, they often cry and complain about the consequences. They complain about God's discipline or punishment, and they get mad at God. And they walk away from God. They don't want anything to do with God. There there are consequences for breaking the law, whether it's God laws, city laws, or state laws. But people are more concerned about the consequences of their sin than they are in the sin that breaks the heart of God. We see that with Cain in Genesis 4, 10 through 14, when he killed his brother Abel. Listen to God's dialogue with Cain and Cain with God. God says to Cain, Cain, what have you done? He knows that, that he had killed his brother. God says, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Now here's the, here's what, here's the consequence. 
God says to Cain, when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you're going to be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, oh, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Notice, notice he starts whining now. He just murdered his brother. And now he's receiving the consequences for his sin. And what is he doing? Oh, my punishment is greater than I can bear. He says, surely you, God, have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Welcome to the consequences of sin. Cain never repented of his sin. And God gave him so many chances. He quite, Cain, why are you angry? Why are you angry? If you came with the right sacrifice, wouldn't it not be accepted? He said, be warned because sin is crouching at the door. I mean, he went on and, and he, he, he was <clears throat> ministering to Cain, <coughs> warning Cain, trying to get him to confess and repent. And he didn't. He wouldn't, con- he wouldn't repent. What he said showed that he only, he only had remorse and regret. Notice he didn't say, oh, God, my guilt is more than I can bear. No, my punishment is more than I can bear. Cain was only concerned with the punishment that he got. He wasn't concerned about, you know, the pain and the grief that it caused God. He wasn't wasn't concerned about his character. It says, you know, he says, if I wander from place to place, I'm going to be in danger. If I stay in one place, I'm going to starve. The earth had turned against him. God had turned against him, and the people would turn against him. Anybody that Cain met, could could it be a relative of Abel? And and they might want revenge. (coughs) They might might take revenge out on Cain. So what could Cain do? By hating and murdering his brother and refusing to repent, Cain created for himself an intolerable life. And that's what sin does. It will create a miserable, intolerable life. It will ruin life. You see, Cain opened the door to temptation. And he closed the door on his family, he closed the door on God, and he closed the door on his future. It didn't matter where Cain lived or what he did, Cain would always be a restless man for whom there was no remedy. Now, some of the exiles of the northern kingdom of Israel had lost both their spiritual and physical identity because of these intermarriages. Their pagan spouses had caused the people to worship idols. Now, Ezra didn't want this to happen to the exiles of the southern kingdom of Judah. So following Ezra's sincere prayer in verses 3 and 4 and verse 11, it says the people confessed their sin to God. And then they asked, God, how do we fix this mess? How do we make things right with you, God? That is our relationship with you. You see, true repentance doesn't end with just a confession. That would just be lip service. And a lot of people just, you know, oh, well, I'm sorry, but there's no change in life. See, true confession has to lead to a change in the behavior and the change of attitudes. When you sin and you're truly sorry, tell it to God and ask him for forgiveness and then accept his mercy and his grace. And then as an act of thanks, for your forgiveness, make the necessary changes. 
turn away from that sin, abandon that sin, forsaken that sin. So here they were going to make a covenant with themselves, according to verse 3, to put away all the pagan wives and their children. Now, making a covenant with God means obligating oneself by an oath to God to do something. It was the most binding form of commitment a person could make. Now, this was an extreme measure, as we can see. But this extreme measure was required by the law of God. Because in those days, in those times, it was the duty of the children of Israel to destroy the idolatrous people of the land. Deuteronomy 7.2 said, You shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. Now this move again, this remedy was to be done in a very formal way, in a covenant. They said, let's make a covenant, which suggested procedures for carrying out these reformations, and Ezra was to be the initiator. Shechaniah said in verse 4, he said to Ezra, he said, Arise, Ezra, for this is your responsibility. Shechaniah reminded Ezra that it was his responsibility to, to teach Israel the law of God. Ezra was morally qualified to do this. Ezra's heart was in it. And Ezra's influence with his people was like nobody else's. Ezra was the leading servant of God. He was the most prominent servant of God. Therefore, he was qualified to do this. The leaders of the people promised themselves to be with Ezra, according to verse 4. They were going to be with him and and, and join him in in this measure. Surely then there would be hope in Israel. And God promises to return to those who return to him. Listen to Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. Notice, the wicked must forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Shechaniah's speech was without a doubt God's answer to Ezra's prayer. So now it's time for action. And Ezra rises to the occasion. Verse 5 says, notice, then Ezra arose. Now in verses 6 through 44, we have the Reformation. Now we're not going to read all of those names, but we're going to read verses 6 through 20, verse 23, 24, 25, and 44. So let's begin with verse 6 through 20. Then Ezra rose from there, uh, rose from before the house of God, and he went into the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and he drank no water. For he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come, notice, within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. All the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Israel, I'm sorry, at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month. And all of the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, 
And you have said, so we must do. As you have said, so we must do. But there are many people. It is the season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside. Nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand, and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Asael, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, gave them support. Then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest, with certain heads of the father's households, were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken, taken pagan wives. And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers. And he goes on, Messiah, Eliezer, Jerib, and Gedaliah. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives. And being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. Okay, in verse 20, also the sons of Emer, Hamai, and he goes on to name the sons. Verse 23, also uh, of the Levites, so the sons of these Levites, and he gives the names of those sons. Verse 24, also of the singers, and he names of there who were the gatekeepers, okay? Verse 25, and others of Israel, of the sons of, and he goes and gives all the names. And then verse 44, the end of the chapter, says all of these, all of these names here, all of these sons, had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. So Ezra, being stirred up by Shechaniah's speech for reformation, he quickly jumps into action. A proclamation was drawn up in the temple, according to verses 6 through 7. Ezra still continued his fast. Mourning, he was mourning because of the guilt of those from the captivity, based on verse 6. Grieving, notice his, his fasting, his mourning. Grieving shouldn't stop until all of the sun, sin is totally done away with. Now the procedures here, the remedy was severe and it was unconditional. All of the children of the captivity were together in Jerusalem or to gather together in Jerusalem within three days, according to verse 8. Now these three days, they were given enough time to gather together with the leaders. And again, what this kind of represents here is no man can ever say that God hasn't given him enough time to receive salvation. But in that time, we can't waste it. There's no time to waste. We must not play around with repentance. Wasting time is dangerous. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Why? You're not guaranteed tomorrow. And if the people failed to show up, the penalty, verse 8 says, they were excommunicated from the people, from the worship of God. To be excommunicated from the fellowship of God's people on earth is a terrible penalty, which is plenty bad by itself. But think about it. What about the permanent exclusion from the fellowship of heaven? Because we don't repent at a time when it is right for us. See, after we die, there's nothing we can do. Our, 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 our destiny is sealed. And to forfeit your property, to forfeit your property meant you were disinherited. 
That meant you lost your legal right to your own land. And the reason is, is to make sure that the heathen children would not inherit Israel's land, which originally belonged to God. Plus the, per, the, plus the person who refused to come to Jerusalem would be excommunicated from the assembly of those who were exiled and not allowed to worship in the temple. And the Jews thought this was a horrible punishment, and it was. But you see what was happening here? They were making a line of separation. That line can't be blurred. We are either committed to God or we're not. There's no walking down the middle of the road with God. They are making a line of separation between those who are going to obey and follow God and those who want to do their own thing. They're under the Mosaic law. And in the church today, I don't think you could force the issue like they're doing here, but they're moving all of the chaff, removing all of the chaff that they possibly, uh, possibly can from the good wheat. And Jesus, that's going to happen one day, that all of the chaff in the church is going to be removed from the good wheat. And it would take about three days, it said here, to do this, to come from any part of the country to meet together. This proclamation was addressed to all of those who had come out of the Babylonian captivity who had returned with Ezra to rebuild the city, the walls, and the temple. Their agreement was they were to come together for a time of spiritual refreshing. But repentance has to come first. And those who wouldn't come, because they felt that things weren't being done the way, wanted them, the way they wanted them done, or they had some other objection, they were to be kicked out of the congregation. And you know, th- this, this goes on in every church. God's word is God's word. There's to be no compromise. And there are people who gather together and, and, and you know, they'll, 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 they'll criticize the leadership, they'll criticize the policies of the church, they'll criticize how things are done, and they will poison other people's minds. And they'll become bitter. If a person or a group or somebody has a problem with the leadership in the church or church, church policies, then they need to, to, to find another church. Don't sin by criticizing and poisoning other people. Find a place, that, a church that does everything the way you want it to. Good luck. The church needs house cleaning today. What the average church needs to do is get rid of, 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 of those people who, who, who want to gossip and complain and, and, and just you know, make things miserable. You know, Turn people away and, and make them bitter. If they, re- if they don't repent, they need, to, they need to go. Bitterness and sin spreads like, a, like an infection. Hebrews 12, 15 says, Looking carefully, notice, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. The writer of Hebrews says, hey, if if the root of bitterness springs up, it causes trouble. And by this, by this root of bitterness that is spread in the church, many become defiled because they believe it and and they go along with it. All it takes is just a few complainers and critics in the church and it can totally hinder any spiritual work, any spiritual movement that God wants to do. And then many lives have been ruined by bitterness. 
So Ezra goes to the people in verses 10 through 11. The people were ready to listen because the fear of God was upon them. All of the people sat in the open square that says here, that is in the street. They sat in the open square of the house of God. Verse 9 said they were trembling because of this matter. And the reason is the Spirit of God had worked this conviction in their hearts in answer to Ezra's prayer. The people were also terrified because of the rain that they were experiencing. Now, this rain may have been natural. It may have been seasonal because it was December, which was their winter. But this rain also could have been God's doing. We see that happen in 1 Samuel 12, 18. It says, So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And it's been made clear to the people they need to change. It brought their sin home to their heart. It urged them to make a full confession to God. And when conviction is deep and when it's real, there will be complete confession. And God requires that. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, this conviction forced them to forsake their sin. Now, there's a sorrow in a confession of sin that worsens its corruption. Now, sincere confession will lead to change, but if it's just remorse or regret, basically, I got caught, it just worsens things. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. And as believers in Christ, all of our sins are forgiven because Christ's death cleansed us from all sin. That being true, then why do we still have to confess our sins? Because, you see, confession is agreeing with God that our thoughts and our words and our actions are wrong and they're contrary to His will. And it's recommitting ourselves to do God's will and to forsake, that is abandon, turn away from any acts of disobedience. Confession is turning away from sin and it's asking God for fresh power to live for him. We hear a lot today about the need for action in the church. But again, what the church really needs is to get cleaned up. There needs to be confession and forsaking of sin even a lack of love has to be confessed jesus said in john 13 35 by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another but love is sorely lacking today how did these people respond they agreed to the reformation in verse 12 it says as you have said ezra so we must do we must do it or we're done for. Their response was enthusiastic. Verse 12 says, they said yes with what? A loud voice. Yes, we're going to do it. They didn't go, okay, Ezra. 
They recognized that it was the right thing to do and they were enthusiastic about doing the right thing. And it's a good thing to make it known that we are against our sins. And it helps to strengthen us and to, and to give us courage for God. And the response was unanimous. Verse 12 says, all the assembly answered. They all agreed. They all answered with a loud voice. It's great when the church is in unity when it comes to God's will because we are powerful when we all pull together, when we're all walking together. What Ezra asked these people to do, it was tough. Just think about it. It was tough. It was a bitter pill to swallow. And I have no doubt that there was a lot of turmoil in these people's hearts and a lot of suffering hearts, breaking hearts as these people separated themselves from their loved ones. And this plan wasn't something they couldn't do in two or three days because it says so many were involved. Not only that, it was raining and they couldn't stay outside much longer. So they were all scheduled. So they were all scheduled uh, when to come to the city and meet with the leaders and the judges to deal with this sinful situation so that God's anger would be turned away. It says a few men were against the plan in verse 15. They didn't like the plan while everybody else supported it. So what did Ezra do? He chose leaders to represent those, those families. All the leaders met later in December to deal with the situation. And by March, the next year, they finished dealing with all of the men who had married pagan wives. And again, verses 18 through 44 lists all the men who were guilty of marrying pagan wives. In closing, the book of Ezra starts with God's temple in ruins. And the people of Judah were captive in Babylon. Ezra tells about the return of God's people, the rebuilding of the temple, and the restoration of the sacrificial worship system. In the same way, God is able to restore and to rebuild people's lives today. Nobody, nobody is so far away from God that he or she cannot be restored. But here's the thing, you have to repent. You have to repent. That means change your mind and change your direction from the way that you are going. It means to go in the opposite direction. No matter how much you have sinned, no matter how far you have strayed away from God, no matter how long it's been since you've worshipped God, God is able to restore your relationship with Him and rebuild your life. Father, thank you for this wonderful book of Ezra, God. The Lord, it, it taught us so much. Father, help us as we always pray, God, to glean, to take away from the Word of God things that we need for our own life, Lord. Father, when we hear your Word, it's not just to receive information. It's not just to get more head knowledge. It's not to just to get more history about the ancient Jews. Your word is, is for transformation. It's to change me, to change my heart, to change my life. 
to change my ways before God. To obey the word of God. <coughs> to apply it to my life. To make it my guide. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, it begins with the confession of sin. No matter how good you might think you are or what good things you may have done, doesn't have anything to do with you and your goodness. It has everything to do with Christ and His goodness. His sinless perfection, the perfect sacrifice, qualified Him to die upon the cross for our sins. Therefore, only He can save you. But again, confession is a must. As the worship team leads us in a time of worship, if you want to receive Christ in your, as your Lord and your Savior, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat, you make your way down the aisles toward the steps up front, I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a prayer of faith.